Alrighty. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Take a moment to check myself. Oh, good thing I did. That would have rung on me. It rang twice Sunday morning. Nobody knew because I had it on vibrate. But All right. You may turn once again to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10. We are in the midst of episode 6 in the uh, last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus Christ. This is the Good Shepherd chapter, John 10, verses 1 through 21. To this point, we had a session in point 1 looking at the introduction uh, to thieves and robbers. And then under point two, one week ago, we dealt with the door. I am the door. Speaking of which, we probably ought to close our door, perhaps. All right. And um, this actually developed into a a larger study than I had at first anticipated, but uh, because we tied it in not only with the door here in John 10, but also the veil principle from Hebrews chapter 10, we realize that this is a part of what the New Testament develops is the new reality for you and I to apply today. Everything in the Old Testament was anticipation, looking forward to the coming uh, promised one, looking forward to the coming Messiah, looking forward to a lot of things that we're looking forward to. Uh, But the door presents the reality that now with with the work of Christ on the cross completed, We're no longer looking forward, we're now looking back, but we also have this identification that takes place. In other words, with positional truth, we enter in to that finished work of Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. We enter into the door, that is, through the door. And uh, these are concepts that would have had no place in the Old Testament, would have made no sense in the Old Testament. Um, And yet, they're, they're very important for us to understand today. Um, I asked the other night, I think it was at PMW or might have been somewhere, but I asked, uh, you know, where were you on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D.? You know, where were you? You were in on the cross, that's right. Because with retroactive positional truth, the moment you placed your faith in Christ and received eternal life, at that time you were placed judicially in Christ, in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection. And so... You know, think back to where you were on certain dates. It's kind of fun to do occasionally. But where were you on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D.? You were on the cross because you're in Christ. And where were you on Saturday, April 4th? In the ground. And where were you on Sunday, April 5th? That's right, in Christ. And uh, we identify with his death, burial, and resurrection, and that's... That's indeed our privilege. So there's a lot of study there on the door. What we did last week is what we're going to leave it with. Uh, but it's a field that I hope to, uh, to venture in for additional studies down the road. For today, though, we're ready for point three. I am the Good Shepherd. And that's what we're going to focus on. Before we do, though, let's take time for silent prayer so that each believer priest in Christ through the door can uh, be in fellowship for the study of his word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, for the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble this morning, Father. We realize that um, this freedom our land enjoys is not, uh, we're not, we don't deserve it. Uh, It can be taken away tomorrow. It is a grace provision that we identify and uh, properly credit you for its preservation. Father, we thank you for the health and the work schedules and the finances, transportation, gas money, everything that it takes to bring us here today. We lift up those who would like to be here but cannot. ask that you would be with them in their present uh, health circumstances or whatever the hindrances are. Father, uh, reward the desire of the heart that desires to uh, stand before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Father, bless our study today. Set aside distractions. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. And for his sake, amen. 
All right, point three in your outline. There are actually only four points to this outline, so this is point three out of four. Uh, each of these, though, with significant subpoints. I am the good shepherd. Reading from John chapter 10 and verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and that is the soul. And we'll be talking about soul life throughout this text. He who has a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life, once again, psuche, soul, for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. Verse 18. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. All right, these are the verses we're going to deal with, and there is so much depth here. If we were teaching the Gospel of John like we're teaching the pace of the First Corinthians series, for example, you might imagine this to be a paragraph that we would take weeks and weeks and weeks to, uh, to deal with. First of all, we understand the aspect of shepherding. We already saw from last week, David had a concept of shepherding. We've got Old Testament passages that deal with shepherding. The Lord is my shepherd in Psalm 23 is not new revelation in terms of uh, the concept. But Jesus Christ takes a well-known concept and actually delivers it now in dimensions that never could have imagined uh, prior to this point of time. And so we are introduced to not just the Lord as my shepherd, but the full impact of the good, the great, and the chief shepherd titles for Jesus Christ. The good shepherd begins a trinity of shepherding titles for Jesus Christ. So subpoint A in your notes, the good, great, and chief shepherd. These titles for Jesus Christ form a trinity of shepherding passages. The good, great, and chief shepherd titles for Jesus Christ form a trinity of shepherding passages. We have any number of shepherding passes, uh, passages throughout the Scripture. And uh, even um, it's one of my uh, sermons, one of my messages that I just kind of keep uh, notes tucked away in the back of my travel Bible, for example. If I'm ever on the road or have to preach or have to give a message, uh, significant shepherding passages is one that I can pull out and go into about eight different texts and be able to expand any of them on any particular occasion. But it's so critical because it's it deals with shepherds in a local church, certainly. We've got ecclesiastical application. But you can look at it in terms of fathers to their children. For a parental application, you can look at it for husbands towards their wives in a marital application. You even can examine it politically. And here we are in a political season, but uh, the shepherds of Israel were indeed political uh, individuals for the temporal life, uh, national issues as they're resolved there. And yet when we get into John, we get into Hebrews, we get into First Peter, we start to see that these titles for Jesus Christ are more than just uh, titles that he wears or that he has claimed to that can then uh, impress people with the title itself. It's not designed to impress us with the title. It's designed to communicate truth. What does that title represent and how does it impact us in the church? Now, we've already gone through John 10 with a good shepherd, and we're going to come back to this and focus mainly on the good shepherd today because that's the content in the Gospels. That's the content that's given to Israel and yet, it also introduced the idea that Gentiles are going to benefit. Those are the sheep not of this fold, and we'll talk about them here in a little bit. But the good shepherd introduces to Israel the role, the shepherding role of their Messiah, the shepherding role of the Christ, and how it's going to benefit not only them, but Gentiles alike, and how a unity would come in terms of one flock with one shepherd. Let's take a look at what the great shepherd is about and the chief shepherd is about. 
Because the difference between good and great, does that mean what we think it means? If, you know, if something's great, that means it's better than something that's good in our minds anyway. Well, in a sense it is. And let's look at it in Hebrews 13. Because there's an application for us and the basis of which is our priesthood in Christ and the reality that we have because of a finished work, not the shadows that we serve because of an anticipated work. So in Hebrews 13, and goodness, there is so much in this chapter as a conclusion to uh, the author's brief exhortation. We, We glimpse that in verse 22. I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. (laughs) <laughs> All right, 13 chapters of some of the most wonderful crystal, uh, Christology and priesthood information for church age application. And you think, man, if only this author could have written something longer, what, uh, what might that have been like? All right, now, you'll note, um, goodness, without reading the whole chapter and without reading the whole book, how about... Um, Verse 12, or verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Okay, we is church age saints, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, in our current stewardship of the church. And our priesthood is so much exalted over the Levitical, Aaronic, Old Testament shadow priesthood that it was. And uh, and that was a priesthood that was very limited. Only certain people could go into the holy place. Only certain people could eat that sanctified bread. And yet they weren't suited to participate at our table because theirs were shadows. Ours is a reality. And so it goes on. Um, The contrast of those animals, the, the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. The actual crucifixion took place outside the gate. So then, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. One of the applications for church age uh, daily living is the reproach that we bear, and we should expect it. For here, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. We want to maintain an eternal focus as we operate in our uh, ecclesiastical priesthood, church-age priesthood. Through him then, through him, and you see why the, the principle of the door is so important, because he is a door, he is a portal, a gate, a person through whom we enter. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. This is our this is the smoke on the altar that should never go out. This is in everything give thanks, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. This is our priestly function through Christ. And uh, the garments he gives by grace we put on in the moment of salvation, we keep them cleansed through confession, but it's through him that we function daily in our priesthood. And do not neglect in doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Your priesthood is directed towards Godward. It's also directed towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's called doing good and sharing, the expression of your priesthood to your fellow believer priests. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Now, the word shepherd isn't there, but the function is being described, isn't it? Keeping watch over your souls. It's like there were shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And they are accountable. Who are they accountable to? The great shepherd, yeah, in this, in this passage. And then the chief shepherd in, in uh, First Peter. And so they will give an account. And you know something? They don't answer to their flock. They answer to their shepherd. And there's a mentality, particularly amongst the congregational mode of governance that the pastor answers to the flock. And if the pastor makes them unhappy, then they fire him and they get a new pastor. Well, they can do what they want to do in earthly terms, but the shepherd answers to the great shepherd. That's the chain of command in this passage here. So let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. 
The sheep has to make a decision. Uh, is this, is this going to be, we're going to do this the easy way or the hard way? <laughs> Are we going to do this the joyous way or the grievous way? And uh, if the shepherd's a true shepherd, he'll do it either way. Um, he may not like it, but he'll do it because he's obedient to Jesus Christ. He's accountable to Jesus Christ. Yet, if the sheep makes it the, uh, the grievous route, well, then that's where they're throwing away the profitability for their own evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. Then he goes on to say, pray for us. This is why prayer for spiritual leadership is so important. For we, I believe this to be Barnabas and his uh, uh, crew, but it, we will find out when we get there. We are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. And we can go through, we won't today, but you look at those pronouns and you wonder who's writing, who's he writing to, who's he with, and what else is going on. That brings us, though, to verse 20. And I don't want to, that's why I took the time to give you the larger context from 10 through 19 to show you where this sits. Now, the God of peace, this is a title for the Father, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. There's Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to discuss the, the both and situations when we say, well, who raised Jesus Christ? Did God the Father resurrect Jesus Christ? Or did Jesus Christ resurrect himself? Because we saw in John 10 that he has authority to lay down his life. He also has authority to take it up again. Some of this, uh, I think, was going to take some work, but we're going to be able to harmonize them because we're not going to fall for the either or trap to say, oh, well, one passage must be right. The other passage must be wrong. All Scripture is God-breathed. They're both true. We'll reconcile them to, uh, to that satisfaction. So the God of peace, that's the Father, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, notice now, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. Now, the blood of the eternal covenant. That's deeper than I'm going to get into this morning. But I want you to notice that this title is, is in connection with the shed blood. That without the blood, without the finished work on the cross, without the obedience to the Father's plan, this title, Shepherd of the Sheep, Great Shepherd of the Sheep, um, would have not been bestowed. That the title, Great Shepherd, was an honor that was bestowed upon him as a consequence to the shed blood. And uh, he stood before the Father in resurrected glory, receiving that title, the Great Shepherd of the Sheep. See, in John 10, he hasn't gone to the cross yet. He's the good shepherd. He is calling forth his sheep, the sheep of his flock. There is a future flock he has not yet begun to address, and we'll talk about that as well. He has the good shepherd title before the cross. After the cross, he has the uh, great shepherd title. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, so we have the good, great, and chief shepherd titles. Over to 1 Peter 5 then for the chief shepherd title. Before the cross, he's the good shepherd. After the cross, he's the great shepherd. For the dispensation of the church, he is the chief shepherd, functioning through under-shepherds in local assemblies. 1 Peter chapter 5. The key verse is in verse 4, but the lead up to that is verses 1 through 3. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. Therefore I, Peter speaking, therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory of that is to be revealed. Remember, elder is not a gift. Elder is not an office. Uh, elder is a maturity status, most closely associated with the offices of, or the office of overseer. All right, elder is a maturity status. By gift, Peter is an apostle. By office, he's pursuing an apostolic ministry. But by maturity status, he's an elder, and he's addressing fellow elders, particularly in local churches throughout Asia. All right, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. This is a great verse that gives us all three, all three terms, elder, shepherd, overseer. And elders are the ones that are addressed here as 
the noun elder, but the verbs are commanded to uh, accomplish are shepherding and overseeing. In other words, pastoring and uh, overseeing. So pastor the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. This is a part of a charge. This is something you might hear at a ordination service, for example. This is what every uh, elder, overseer, pastor is committed to be faithful uh, before Jesus Christ. Shepherd the flock of God among you. It's not your flock, it's God's flock, but you are to count it as yours as you shepherd it. Notice also, among you. You're not omnipresent. The good shepherd is, the great shepherd is, the chief shepherd is. You are monopresent. And where you are is where you shepherd. Important consideration there. Exercising oversight. Now notice, uh, nor yet as lording it. There you take the noun Lord, like Lord Jesus Christ. You take the curious Lord. You're turning it into a verb. Uh, you trying to Lord, trying to be a Lord, trying to domineer. Those allotted to your charge. Allotted to your charge. Now remember, they're still God's sheep. But what's happened to God's sheep? He has allotted them to your charge. That's where you can claim a personal ownership of God's sheep. All right. This becomes a huge distinction back in John 10 when we see the difference between the shepherd and the hireling. The hireling doesn't care. They're not his sheep. He'll run. There's a wolf. <laughs> All right. Not risking my neck. They're not my sheep anyway. Who cares? It's just a paycheck. So here we see how God's ownership becomes the shepherd's ownership when we understand that it's a stewardship that's been allotted to your charge. We saw in Hebrews that they must give an account. Here we see the sheep are allotted to your charge. But proving to be examples to the flock. So you're not lording, you're exampling. Right? You are setting the example. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There is no reward promised in time. No reward promised in time. For faithful shepherds. Now there may. The faithful shepherds may reap. Rewards in time. God may certainly bless. Faithful shepherds in time. He's free to do that. And he often does that. I can't even begin to describe all my blessings in time. That God has graciously poured forth. And yet none of them are promised. Zero. The reward. We're looking forward to. The uh, revelation of Jesus Christ, looking forward to the reward. It's an eternal reward. When the chief shepherd appears. Hadn't happened yet? I think it's in our lifetime. I think it's in our decade. I think we're close. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's a crown that elder, faithful elders, shepherding, overseeing elders can look forward to. Alright, so this is uh, the trinity of passages as we deal with. He was the good shepherd before the cross, received the title great shepherd after the cross upon his resurrection out of the grave, and he functions today in our stewardship in the church age as the chief shepherd exercising oversight over the under shepherds that then shepherd particular local churches. That's why he stands in the midst of the candlesticks. That's why he holds the stars in his right hand. That's his office as the chief shepherd. All right, back to John 10 then. Back to the Good Shepherd passage. The Good Shepherd passage introduces a trinity of shepherding passages particularly tied to the uh, titles and functions of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Good, Great, and Chief Shepherd titles for Jesus Christ form a trinity of shepherding passages. All right, now, point B. The essence of shepherding is soul sacrifice. The essence of shepherding is soul sacrifice. John 10, verse 11. We're going to compare it to 15, 13. And we'll see the application of agape love in 1 John 3, 16. The essence of shepherding is soul sacrifice. John 10, 11, 15, 13. In the ultimate expression of agape, 
1 John 3.16 And the ultimate expression of agape, if you want to call it agape love, you can call it agape love, or you can just call it agape. A-G-A-P-E. In the ultimate expression of agape. I decided uh, a couple months back now, I decided that agape love is redundant. Let's just call it agape. All right. So the essence of shepherding is soul sacrifice. He lays down his soul for the sheep in the ultimate expression of agape. John 10, 11, John 15, 13, 1 John 3, 16. Again, I am the good shepherd. This statement is made twice. Verse 11. And so the second half is very interesting when we put it in parallel with the second half of verse 14. Both 11 and 14 start with, I am the good shepherd. It's the second half of those verses that we put in parallel and realize their synonymous nature. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the second half of verse 11. Uh, I know my own and my own know me. That's the second half of verse 14. The laying down life for the sheep is the... Uh, the, the benefit and the blessing due to the intimacy of the shepherding sheep uh, metaphor. All right. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his soul. The term is soul, psuche. I didn't uh, put a Strong's number down, but we have the text up here. We can find it pretty quickly. In fact, I can just hover right here. And I see that it's 5590. Psuche, 5590, if you want to do a study on that. Uh, probably the most comprehensive notes lately would have been in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 or chapter 15 when we're dealing with soul and spirit and the different re- uh, aspects of resurrection. All right. Soul sacrifice. Lays down his soul. Now we're going to differentiate a little bit between soul and life. Although the terms are are sometimes interchangeable, we do the same thing in English. If a ship sinks and we say, you know, 300 souls were lost, something like that, it means that physical death took place uh, because as human bodies drowned, the souls departed from the bodies, and that's how that works. When the soul departs from the body, physical death is the consequence, all right? The leading cause of death among humanity is the soul departing from the body, (laughs) been the case ever since uh, the Garden of Eden. All right. Now, let's turn over to, uh, let's consider, before we get to these other texts, let's consider when did Jesus Christ lay down his soul? When did Jesus Christ take it back up again? And is that the same as his physical death and his bodily resurrection. Most people never even think about it and just assume, well, it's just an idiom. It's an expression that means he died and he came back to life. Okay, But the idiom here, the, the language here, is actually speaking of an active voice verb of what Jesus Christ is doing in terms of laying down his soul. And laying down is not the only verb that's used there. There's other passages that speak of him offering up his soul in priestly sacrifice. And what are you doing anyway when you lay an animal on an altar? You're offering up. That's the other context in which laying down is the same as offering up. And so when he lays down his soul, or in terms when he offers it up to the Father, he's still physically alive at this point. He is offering himself, his soul, as a sacrifice in our place. Some aspects on that will... We'll have to uh, consider as well when we see some of these other texts. All right. So, over to chapter 15 then. And you'll notice in any of these passages, uh, Mary is nowhere on the picture. Okay? (laughs) Jesus doesn't say, you know, I am the good shepherd and my mother will come and offer up my soul as the mediatrix. Okay? The term mediatrix is not in the Bible. It's in uh, Roman theology. That's, uh, that's what their religion promotes. All right. Mary's not offering her son. Jesus is offering himself. And Mary needs a Savior like the rest of us. All right. John 15. And we'll be here shortly because this, uh, this is still 
coming up in the life of Christ. He's not yet delivered this I am message, the true vine message about bearing fruit and ultimately pleasing the father in the bearing of fruit. But we look at verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now, this is my commandment. We want to remember is that the commandment Jesus Christ assigns to you and I is the commandment he received from the father. As the father sent me, so send I you. As the father commanded me, so command I you. Now, you wonder in terms of the father commanding the son to love the world. How is that going to be expressed? Well, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his soul for his friends, that one lay down his soul for his friends. Then he goes on to say, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Um, let's look at this closer because this is not church in its application, but these disciples are the ones that will very shortly become the apostles in the church age. This is an intimacy that's offered here to Israel, and yet they're on the verge of having that stewardship removed. And I think we focus so much on this being church that we lose track of what it's going to be like in the millennial kingdom when Israel finally learns what this uh, friendship is about. So greater love has no one than this, than that one lay down his soul, his psuche, for his friends. And we're going to, we have application ourselves in, in our sacrificial love. We're to walk in agape. We're to love one another. That's Jesus Christ's commandment. And we must be willing to lay down our souls. What does that mean? We have to go to a cross? No. But it means that the needs of the other, it means that their benefit comes first. Esteeming the other is more important than ourselves. You'll see some of these other things. The soul, we'll, we'll break down the, the attributes and talk about the soul here in a moment. You are my friends, notice now, if you do what I command you. In other words, if you operate in this sacrificial, unconditional, integrity love. Uh, friendship with Jesus Christ is not automatic. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not automatic. There are a lot of born-again brothers and sisters that we'll see in heaven for all eternity, but they're not disciples because they're not abiding in the Word of God. And they're not friends. Because they're not obeying this commandment to function in agape love and, and sacrifice and love one another. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. See, the, um, the relationship with Jesus Christ is, is we, we, we enjoy this as a benefit, but try to understand how transformative this is for an Old Testament perspective. It's been under bondage of the law since 1440 B.C., now they're being offered this freedom and friendship with their Messiah. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And as I mentioned, Israel will finally reap this in the second advent when he comes back at, at the second advent and reigns on the millennial throne. Then Israel and their stewardship will enjoy the friendship with Jesus Christ that the bride and that you and I and the church and our stewardship have been enjoying. All things I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit so that your fruit would, and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. All right, so we have this idea of soul sacrifice, which is friendship with Christ, but through that and because of that then, it is fruit bearing for the Father. This starts to take us into a relationship with God the Father. Shepherding is a father function, and that's what we see the Father emphasized here. All right, in the ultimate expression of agape, 1 John 3.16. Same author, different book. 1 John 3.16. A verse that ought to be as memorized as John 3.16. It's 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. He laid down his soul for us. And that was a very nice thing. <laughs> not what the verse says. All right. It's not just something we know about. It's something we've got to do something about. Because there are expectations on our behalf. 
He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Lay down our lives. So what does it mean? How do you lay down your soul? I know how to lay down a coffee cup. I know how to lay down a ballpoint pen. I can lay all kinds of things down. How do I lay down my soul in agape love? Any thoughts? I'm sorry? Well, you know, it says so right here. uh, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? You know, when you think about, again, laying down is also the language of offering up. Where are you laying it down on? What are you laying it down on? On the altar. Yeah, giving it God. These are all on the altar of sacrifice laid. You know, we sing that hymn. So, I've also read sermons. I think the... um, the uh, Puritans talked about laying down in terms of laying it on the ground where it could be walked on. Okay. You know, laying down is vulnerable. Laying down could hurt. Someone might step on it. Might get trampled. Well, that's what it's about. If you have a sacrificial agape attitude, you might get hurt. It might be unpleasant. But if it benefits your brother in Christ, is that a price you're willing to pay? So uh, if you have the world's goods and you see his brother in need and you close your heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Rhetorical question. Obviously, it doesn't. He has no agape love. He's closed his heart. So this is how we lay down our life. We lay down our soul when we uh, are just place it on the altar before God the Father and say, it's yours. It's not mine. Here I am, send me. Okay, this is how we apply the metaphor. All right, back to John then. See, what I want you to see is that when he laid down his soul, it's something different from when he physically died. When he says, into thy hands I commit my spirit, was not the same as when he laid down his soul and then when he took it up again. See, he'd already laid it down and taken it up in order to give it to the Father. All right, back to John 10. And and don't don't feel uh, weird or, or somehow goofy because for not having thought of this before I, I never thought of a lot of these things. In fact, it was probably up until maybe a year ago or so when a light bulb came on and I started thinking, wait a minute. It was almost like the colonel used to talk about breakthroughs, right? This breakthrough. But all of a sudden, it was really just a light bulb coming on and a, and a blithering idiot figuring out, why didn't I learn that 20 years ago? But because he died on the cross. And they stuck a dead body in the ground. And then on the third day, a living body came out of the ground. Okay, And that's what I've always thought about. That's what I've always considered with the death of Christ, his burial, his resurrection. But in terms of his spiritual death, in terms of accepting the sin of humanity upon himself and the wages of sin is death and when God's wrath was poured out and he died spiritually. Okay. When was that spiritual life restored? Before. Before he said it is finished. His statement of to tell us die it is finished was spoken by a spiritually living Savior who was still physically alive on the cross. He had laid down his soul and he had taken it up again because the wrath was poured out and yet he had done no unrighteousness. We're going to spend, I don't know if the Lord delays, I don't want to slow the rapture down, but when the, I'm going to enjoy the passion in this Wednesday morning Life of Christ class. All right, and I don't know how many more it'll take us to get there. What lesson is this today? This is, you know, the number on this, two twenty. Okay, well, we're getting close. You know, I'm looking forward to the cross. That day, that night before the, the trials throughout the night, the morning, the, the the beatings, everything, that whole day, and then the actual work. What did he do when he laid down his soul? When he took it back up. These are things we want to uh, prayerfully consider between now and then. All right. Shepherding is not for hirelings. 
Shepherding is not for hirelings. Shepherding is not for hirelings. You could be a shepherd or you could be a hireling, not both. And don't confuse things if, if you know, a church pays their pastor. Does that make him a hireling? No, it means they're operating under grace appreciation, the same as he's operating under grace appreciation. Shepherding is not for hirelings. See, and here's the thing, and this is where I think a lot of groups and people and so forth, they get confused because they get their fancy seminary degrees and they expect, like we were talking about this morning, a Dallas seminary guy goes to a a rural uh, church somewhere in a tiny little corn farm town of Iowa and uh, in his very first interview says, I've got a Dallas seminary THM, I'm entitled to $70,000 a year starting pay. It goes up from there. You know, that's the starting pay for a first-year guy out of Dallas. <laughs> really? You know, is, is that, it's like you're going you, to be an engineer, you go get your degree and you expect the payoff. You're going to be a doctor, you go get your credentials and you expect the payoff. What is this? Are we hirelings? Are we shepherds? Shepherding is not for hirelings. We read about it. The, the shepherd stands his ground. The shepherd fights the wolves and the lions and the bears. David said he killed lions and bears by the time he was probably 12 years old, 10 years old. I'm guessing he was 10 when he faced Goliath. And by then he'd already killed lions and bears. You know, think about what your 10-year-old does. You know, we, we panic when they go across the street to the park. You know, buddy system and all that. But you see, the hired hand, the misthotos, it's a great term. I don't think I even put it down in my notes. Misthotos. Misthos is pay. It's your paycheck at the end of the week. And um, so misthotos is a noun that comes out of that. Ha misthotos, right here. And this is the... uh, the paid one, the paycheck collector. He's the one that receives a misthos, a reward. Paycheck. What does he do? Well, he's not a shepherd. He's not the owner of the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. Now, is he, uh, is he at risk? Might he be in danger? Could the sheep, could the could the wolf actually harm him or hurt him or even kill him? Possibility, and you know, if you're engaged in fighting an animal and whatnot, uh, that's that may happen. Some scratches, some bites, injuries, even death. If you don't know what you're doing, okay. To be honest, though, uh, canines are not that hard to kill. In different aspects. And part of my police training actually was emergency procedures for dog attacks and things like that. But, um, but rather than risk the, the bites and the scratches and the danger to self, why face danger to self if you don't have to? Because all you have to do is actually step out of the picture and the wolf's going to go for the sheep. <laughs> right? It's like that joke about the, the bear in the woods and the two guys running and, and the guy stops. You know, have you heard this? The, these two friends are hiking through the woods on a, on a hike, camp out, whatever. And they're hiking and, and then this bear starts charging at them from across the, the, the meadow there. And so they take off running. The bear starts chasing them. And the bear is starting to close the distance at a pretty good rate. And so one guy just stops and he throws his pack down. And the other guy stops and he throws his pack down. And then he gets ready to take off running again. But the first guy actually starts rummaging through his pack. Well, meanwhile, the bear's getting closer. And the second guy thought they were just dropping the packs to run faster or whatever. He's like, what are you rummaging through your pack for? And he sees that this, the guy's kicked off his boots and he's putting on his sneakers. He's like, what are you doing? We've got to get out of here. And, and uh, the first guy says, well, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> right? See, if you present the bear with another meal, you never heard that before? Oh, that's an old army joke. I remember that from years ago. 
the the um, the, the hireling here says, "Hey, that wolf doesn't really want me anyway. Wolf doesn't care about me. The wolf's not hungry, looking for a shepherd dinner. So all this guy has to do, this hireling, just step out, get out of the way." And uh, he'll see the unguarded sheep and start licking his chops, and there you go. That's the hireling attitude. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Now, again, we have two statements in parallel. In both passages, we're told he flees. But in verse 12, we're told he's not the owner of the sheep. And in verse 13, we're told he's not concerned about the sheep. And those statements come in parallel. All right. For our application, again, uh, you're not, you don't belong to me, belong to God, but I have a sense of ownership because of the accountability that, that you have been allotted to my charge, that I must give an account as one who is accountable. So um, anyway, the metaphor comes across here in this, uh, in this context. So a shepherding is not for hirelings. The one thing we want to find out is in, in men that think they have a gift, they think they, you know, they, they love the Lord, they, they dream about being a pastor someday for whatever reason, okay? And uh, you want to find out. All right. We want to make sure you're on a shepherding track and you're not on a hireling track. We want to be very clear, and this is part of the preparation. And until that mindset is locked in, uh, ordination's out of the question. We've got to figure out where your heart is. So, um, because we're not about putting out hirelings. We're, we're about training pastors, training shepherds, someone that will lay down their soul on behalf of the sheep. Point D, the shepherd-sheep intimacy is equated with the father-son intimacy. The shepherd-sheep intimacy, that's shepherd-slash-sheep, intimacy between shepherds and sheep, where the shepherd knows them by name, and they know his voice. We already studied this in the, in the door paragraph about how the shepherd can come to the door and call out his own. The shepherd-sheep intimacy is equated with the father-son intimacy, and that's just hard to wrap your mind around because that's eternal and infinite. Verses 14 and 15. So before we read those, let's back up to the door. He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. Verse 3, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And the sheep hear his voice. See, this is my prayer for every visitor that comes in. I don't know what they're looking for. Some are looking for daycare programs or looking for whatever. Well, if they belong to me, they'll hear the voice and they'll know. And if they don't belong to me, they won't hear my voice. To them, I'm the voice of a stranger. And they'll go find another church. They'll keep visiting. They'll keep looking. And they need to. They absolutely need to. Sometimes I scare away. Or visitors wonder, well, I say, you know, I'm praying that the Lord will take you where you need to be. It might be here. It might not be here. And sometimes people say, well, what do you mean? You don't want us to stay? You don't want us to be your, in your congregation? Well, not if Jesus Christ wants you elsewhere. You've got a gift, you've got ministries, you've got effects, you're, you're designed to fit into a flock. And if Jesus Christ doesn't have you designed for this one, why would I be selfish or why would I want to defy Jesus Christ and, and try to steal a sheep that's not mine? Anyway, people sometimes say, well, that's kind of weird. Well, no, I think it's an application of John 10. I believe that that's the shepherd-sheep relationship. All right, so uh, he, to him the doorkeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. He knows every single sheep. He knows their name, every single one. And just like Adam had the sovereignty to name the animals, the shepherd here with the sovereignty naming the sheep. And he leads them out. He puts forth all his own. Notice there's personal ownership, the accountability. He goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice a stranger they simply will not follow, but they will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. All right, so that's what we're looking at there. But we get down to verses 14 and 15, and we see this concept in terms of Jesus Christ as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. 
There's the intimacy. And here's the equivalence in verse 15. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. That's eternal. And that's infinite. And that's the degree of intimacy we're to have with our great shepherd, with our good shepherd. We are to know him and he is to know us. This is why in 1 Corinthians we talked about knowing as we ought to know to where we are fully known by him. All right. You know, the the whole idea that salvation is the totality of God's plan is just insane. Because what do you know the day you get saved? Nothing. Worse than that. You know less than nothing because you got some baggage you think you know from before you got saved. <laughs> so that's worse than knowing nothing. You got stuff you got to unlearn to have your mind renewed and to be walking in the light and the things that happen there. All right. So even as the Father knows me and I know my Father and I lay down my life... For the sheep that gets restated in terms of the intimacy between the shepherd and the sheep. You know, when we talk about, we're going to see some of the uh, passages coming up. The love between the father and the son. The eternal joy they have always had with each other. At the moment of creation, when they created this universe, the father designed it, instructed the son. The son did it and both were delighted. The father was so proud of his son for the work that he'd done, and the son was so pleased to have pleased the father in total obedience to the father's will. And uh, we're going to see some dimensions of that in Proverbs 8 and elsewhere when we see this love between the father and the son, the intimacy between the father and the son, the whole point as to why they created anything anyway. Why did God decide to create something apart from himself? Because he didn't need us. He was perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Why create something outside and apart from himself? We're going to learn what these uh, purposes are. So the, um, this intimacy, this, uh, this message that caused conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Every time he talked about his father, made him mad. Because they figured out very quickly that his father wasn't their father. And he then spotlighted who their father was. That made him even more mad. And so, in this aspect, is there any wondering why it is that shepherding is the realm that actually sparks the angelic conflict? Is the realm that actually fully engages in the angelic conflict? Uh, I remember Ralph telling me, he says, your teaching will never get you, uh, never get your church mad at you and get you fired. It's your shepherding. Your shepherding. Not just mine, but any pastors, not their teaching, their shepherding can be a wedge, can be an angelic conflict trigger, can launch all kinds of things. I find that interesting. So we have the intimacy there. Point E, other sheep, other sheep. Jesus' first Advent ministry was to Israel, but the Gentile sheep will soon be conjoined with the Jewish sheep into one flock. That's what he's saying here in John 10 when he says, I have other sheep. Other sheep. Other sheep means that uh, they're not a different animal. They're the same animal. They just belong in a different pen, a different fold. They have a different status presently, but they are about to have a new status united with these sheep. Probably. Where's my typo error? Okay. Jesus' first Advent ministry was to Israel. Matthew ten sixteen instead of 6. Okay. fifteen twenty four. But the Gentile sheep will soon be conjoined with the Jewish sheep into one flock. We've got Matthew ten sixteen. I'm told. Matthew fifteen twenty four, Acts 17, 26. And Deuteronomy 32, 8. When we address the Gentile sheep that will soon be conjoined with the Jewish sheep into one flock. Presently, they are in different folds. They have different uh, pens, different uh, uh, resting places, different capacities. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And so in terms of the classifications of humanity into Jew and Gentile, those were distinctions that he put into place with the calling of Abraham. All right, so let's start to look at some of these. It's a distinction that's going to be removed for our stewardship and our stewardship only. When the trumpet sounds and the church is removed, 
distinctions return between Jews and Gentiles. And the primary evangelists in the tribulation are Jewish. 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Once again, restored to their stewardship. All right, Matthew 10. No, verse 6. I like verse 6. That was not a typo. Close. Yeah, 10.16 is the famous one. About I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. But 10.6. When he's sending out the twelve. Here's our dodecapostologue. Peter and 11 more. Okay. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. Do not go the way of the Gentiles. Now, this is because the purpose for first advent ministry was to Israel. He came to his own, his own received him not. That he was revealed in the, of the sons of, of Jacob. He was revealed in the tribe of Judah, the family of David. He was revealed to Israel. Israel to Israel were the prophets. To Israel were the scriptures. To Israel were the promises. And to Israel is the Christ according to the flesh. First Advent ministry, Israel. So these twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans. They were half-breeds, half-Gentile, half-Jewish. But rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. First Advent was to Israel. But we're going to see actually in the in the um, mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3 proclaimed among the nations, proclaimed among the Gentiles, taken up in glory. However, main ministry was to Israel. That's why the Syrophoenician woman came begging for the healing of her daughter. And he said, I was sent to the sheep of the lost house of Israel. And it's not good to give the, the bread that belongs to the children to give the bread to the dogs. And you remember her faith. We taught this already in this class. You remember her great faith. And she said, well, yes, Lord, but even the dogs can get some crumbs that fall off the table. Yeah, she knew she wasn't Jewish. She knew she didn't have any entitlement to any kind of mercy or grace or anything else. Oh, she was just a Gentile dog hoping for some scraps. So um, his first advent ministry was to Israel. Matthew 10, 6, Matthew 15, 24. Here, hey, how about that? Got ahead of myself. Jesus went away from there, withdrew to the district of Tyre and set on. This was a retreat, a vacation, a time out from the angelic conflict and a, a little bit of rest and recreation and whatever else I've heard about. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Uses his royal title. She knows she has no merit, no standing. He's not her king, not earthly king anyway my daughter is cruelly demon possessed he did not answer her a word his disciples came and implored him saying send her away because she keeps shouting at us will you quit with that racket already get her out of here but he answered and said i was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of israel and she came again bowed down before him saying lord help me he answered and said it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs See, he was here to give bread. He was the bread of heaven. He was here to minister to the children of Abraham. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. What a testimony. A Gentile, God-fearing Gentile. And dog, Gentile dog. I think Caleb was a Gentile adopted into the tribe of Judah with Jephunneh as a father, as an adopted father, tribal father. Because um, Caleb's got two fathers listed when you read his different genealogies. Well, how do you have two fathers? <laughs> Explain that biology. Well, you can have a birth father and an adopted father. And in particular, if he's... And what Jewish father would name their son Dog? Caleb means dog. There's not a Jewish father in the world that would name their son Dog. I think Caleb was a Gentile adopted into the tribe of Judah. And he took the name Dog as an application of humility. We'll find out when we get there. But I'm... Pretty convinced of that. All right, so here she knows. She's a Gentile dog as well. All she wants is some scraps. And uh, her faith is great, and the miracle is provided. So a first advent 
to Israel. However, the Gentile sheep will soon be conjoined with the Jewish sheep into one flock. Now, again, keep in mind that in John chapter 10, church is still a mystery. Not revealed, not unfolded. He's not going to say, oh, by the way, uh, there's going to be a change of stewardship and Israel's going to be set on hold and a new mystical body of Christ is going to be... None of that. None of that. However, this is a clue, an anticipation, a prophetic uh, glimmer into what is pending. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. And, uh, oh, I'm already at 11.01. Let's uh, very quickly wrap up, wrap this up. Acts 17.26, Deuteronomy 32.8. Acts 17, and you will note, here's Paul rebuking the Athenians for their altar. They're very religious people, and he finds an altar to an unknown God in verse 23. They were so religious, they were terrified, maybe they overlooked somebody. So let's go ahead and have this uh, temple, this altar here to, uh, kind of like in baseball, player to be named later. This is... uh, a God to be figured out later on, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. You bring meat for the altar, you're not feeding a hungry God. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Notice now, and he made from one man, or one flesh, or one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. One. There's a wonderful book out there named by Ken Ham, the Answers in Genesis guy, uh, called One Blood. And it's, and it's designed, I mean, it's refuting evolution, doing other things, but it's worthwhile to read as uh, I think it's worthwhile in terms of these idiot racists and other things as far as white people, black people, whatever else. One Blood. One flesh, one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Now I want you to notice something else here. Having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. Israel is not the only nation to have a land grant or to have boundaries. The divisions of humanity also have land grants in terms of their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Who's in charge? God's in charge. Even over the Gentile nations, God's in charge. You go back now. This is uh, extra credit. Deuteronomy 32.8. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High, now this is El Elyon, this is God Most High, this is the main title for God to the Gentile nations. Gentiles were not privileged to call Him Yahweh. They knew the name, but it wasn't their name. Yahweh was the revealed name for Israel. Gentiles like Melchizedek and Nebuchadnezzar and others, uh, Balaam in those contexts, He is God Most High. El Elyon, the Most High God. When the Most High gave the nations... Their inheritance. Israel has an inheritance, of course. Twelve tribes and seventy divisions. But now here are the Gentiles and their divisions. The Most High gave the nations their inheritance. When He separated the sons of man, He set the boundaries of the people. See, not only at Babel did He disperse their, confuse the languages and disperse the people into tribes and tongues and nations, He appointed their boundaries. He set the boundaries of the Gentiles, the peoples, Hagoim in the Hebrew. Notice, according to the number of the sons of Israel. According to the number of the sons of Israel. There's a text question there. If you have a King James, a new King James, it might say the sons of God or it might do some other things. All right. I think the number of the sons of Israel is uh, complete. All right. Um, and I'm long, I know that, I apologize for that. The, um, just because Abraham was set apart and his descendants were entrusted with a stewardship does not mean that God abandoned the Gentiles for 2,000 years of human history. Gentiles could still get saved. Uriah the Hittite, Nebuchadnezzar, all of these Gentiles, uh, Rahab, the harlot, the, uh, Ruth, the Boat, uh, Ruth, 
the Moabites and so forth, lots of Gentiles could get saved. They just did not have a stewardship entrusted to them in their salvation as believing Jews had a stewardship entrusted to them in their salvation. Um, but here we see that even the nations themselves have boundaries, have identities, have uh, languages, have other features associated with them according to the number of the sons of Israel. If you ever want to have some fun, someday when you're bored and have nothing else to do, go back to Genesis 10, look at the table of nations. You'll find Ham, Shem, and Japheth in three broad branches. Beneath them you'll find their sons listed. And what you're going to find, you're going to find 70 divisions of humanity. 70. And then what do you have when you look at Israel? Twelve tribes, but each tribe has various clans and families. And what do you have with Israel? Seventy clans or divisions between the 12 tribes, 70 clans or divisions of Israel. And I'm convinced that that's not coincidence, that the 70 Gentile divisions from Genesis 10 and the 70 divisions of Israel shows us, just like this verse says, uh, according to the number of the sons of Israel, that that's where we see the correlation where the nation of Israel will have their priestly function and stewardship function in the millennial kingdom. The 70 divisions of Israel to the 70 divisions of Gentiles. But we'll find that out when, uh, when we get to the millennium and, and God actually sorts out for us the, uh, <laughs> the nations we belong to. Because uh, we've been rather melted, potted, and, and blended and confused for, for some time now. But God's in charge of that and he'll figure it out. <laughs> All right. Well, seven minutes late. Um... I'm not sure when we'll make that up. I think we were early last week. Yeah, we were early last week. We were four minutes early last week. Maybe. Thank you, Father, for this day, the truth of your word, for your faithfulness. Father, continue to guide this study. Teach us about this good shepherd, great shepherd, chief shepherd. Impact in our thinking what our shepherding opportunities are as pastors of churches, as husbands of wives, as fathers of children, parents of children, um, as older believers to younger believers. Father, we have shepherding privileges and opportunities to come alongside and disciple younger brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Father, the more we study these shepherding passages, the more we're encouraged and the more we're delighted because this is a, a point of application where in which, like with intercessory prayer, we become very Christ-like. The more that we shepherd, the more Christ-like we become. And I thank you for that. I praise you in the name of the good, the great, and the chief shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. Might today be the day in which he returns. I thank you. Amen.